Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. For those who are a little bit newer here, we're, we're working through the uh, book of Daniel and we are all the way down to Daniel chapter 8. Um, and so I'm going to be covering the whole chapter today. I'm going to begin by reading it again. I know it's a lengthy section, but I always prefer to read the whole text when we can. We are actually told in the scripture to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture. And um, if nothing else that is said today is the word of God, other than what Greg read in the book of Psalms and what I did in Colossians, you know God is speaking. This is his word to you and I. And as we're going to be hearing today, it is a powerful word. So hear now the word of the living God. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west, and the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel. 
Tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerning the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings is, that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, one evening, I was just sitting around, I'm pretty tired, and clicked on TV, and I saw that the old movie Die Hard was on. And I had already been reading Daniel 8 a lot. And in Die Hard, if you remember, uh, Alan Rickman uh, played, it was actually in his first movie role, and he plays one of the best villains of all time, Hans Gruber, who has taken over this building. And as Gruber comes in, he sees the model of what this Japanese corporation was planning a building, and he looks at it and he says, Alexander wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. And then he actually quips the benefit of a classical education, which apparently wasn't a very good classical education because that's not exactly what the quote actually is. Most people today think that's the quote regarding Alexander, but it's actually not the quote regarding Alexander. In Plutarch, uh, an ancient historian, he wrote in the lives of Alexander the following. It's reported that King Alexander the Great, hearing Anarchus the philosopher discoursing and maintaining this position, that there were worlds innumerable. So there's all kinds of planets and worlds out there. He fell a-weeping. And when his friends and familiars asked him what he ailed, have I not, quoth he, good cause to weep, that being as there are an infinite number of worlds, I'm not yet the Lord of even one. So Alexander didn't weep because he had conquered to the ends of the earth, but because he felt like he had not, and there were all these other worlds that he needed to conquer, because even if he was the undisputed master of all that lay around him, it was not enough, which is a parable of human power, but that's not specifically what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about Alexander and his meteoric rise and his fall. 
And we're going to talk about another ruler that's going to come from him, but we're going to talk about one of the most amazing things of all, which is that God gave a vision to Daniel the prophet more than 200 years before Alexander and almost 400 years before the figure known here as the other little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're going to see that Daniel laid all of this out accurately. Because here is the fact that Daniel, the whole book, is keeping before us. History of humanity comes and goes, it rises and it falls, but the word of the sovereign Lord rules over all, and it will reign forever. And so we're going to talk today about history and the word of the sovereign God. Now notice Daniel in the first four verses, he says he's having this vision, and it's not clear to us at this point uh, in our English translations, but here he actually shifts from Aramaic back to Hebrew. And again, if you can read those languages, you note that. And everything is now shifting specifically down to things that are going to deal with Israel in the future. We've been getting this grand sweep of all the way up until the time Messiah comes, these four kingdoms, and then the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to plant the eternal kingdom of God, the fifth kingdom that's going to rule and reign. But here, we're now starting to narrow down. The rest of the book is going to be narrowing down. And Daniel is given another vision. And this one's two years later than the vision in chapter 7. So it's still long before chapter 5. Belshazzar is still the king, but this is, this is about 10 or 12 years before, actually, uh, Babylon is going to fall to Persia. And interestingly, if you notice in the vision, he tells us, I was, saw myself in the citadel of Susa. It's not entirely clear whether he's saying he was in Susa or just in the vision he saw himself in Susa. But the reason that's important, you might wonder, is what difference does it make that he's in Susa? Well, Susa became a royal residence for the Persian Empire. And so we're already getting a, a little bit of a foretaste here that, oh, things have definitely shifted from Babylon to Persia. The kingdom right now, the great empire, is still Babylon, but Daniel's given this vision in Susa. And this is the place of the Persian kings. It's also where Nehemiah and Esther are later. If you go back and you look there, and you can see that Ezekiel does some stuff there. So all of this is going to come out further in the scripture. But in his vision, he sees this ram with two horns, and they're massive horns. But we're told that, interestingly, one of them that starts out smaller ends up growing larger than the others. And what this is a reference to is it's referencing the Medo-Persian Empire because originally the Medes were the dominant part of the empire. And in fact, Persia were their vassals until Cyrus, who is of Median descent, but also Persian descent, but he's from the Persian side of the kingdom, he becomes the king of Persia and then says, I'm not going to serve the Medes anymore. And he ends up conquering. And so the Medo-Persian Empire really becomes kind of the Persian Empire. Now, if you're wondering how I know it's the Persian Empire, it's not because I just got uh, amazing insight. It's because we're told, notice, that there's this ram with the horns. And then in verse 20, Gabriel tells us the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. I like when God does that. It makes my job very much easier. I can just sit back, you know, and eat bonbons or whatever instead of working. 
So we've got here this picture as the media of the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persians are going to become greater. Now what's interesting is about the time that Daniel's having this vision is about the time that Cyrus is rising up and throwing off the Medes. It's right around the same time. And Cyrus is going to set out and start conquering kingdoms. Once he conquers the Medes or, or makes Persia the senior member of the empire, he's going to start moving around and conquering other uh, places. And so notice it says that the ram charges towards the west and the north and the south, and no, no animal could stand before him. None could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And this is actually true. Cyrus quickly conquered Babylon and Syria. And this was the largest empire the world had known until this time. It was massive. It was far larger than the Babylonian Empire. And Persia seemed invincible for about 200 years. They rule. In fact, some of the later Persian kings end up starting mischief with the Greeks. And you remember, this is where if you've ever seen you know, any of the things about prior to Alexander the Great, the movie 300 and some of the stories about the Spartans and their stand at Thermopylae. That's because the Persian Empire is coming in and they are so massive. Their army was so large when they were coming to fight at Thermopylae. Uh, you know, there's the quip from one of the Spartan soldiers because he was told, you can't possibly win when they fire their arrows. There's so many arrows it blots out the sun. And the Spartan uh, warrior said, well, that's good. At least we know we'll be fighting in the shade because they were not going to give in to Persia. But there was this struggle, and the Persians were the dominant empire for about 200 years. And you have to understand, they seemed invincible. Even to the Greeks, the Greeks seemed so small, they seemed like they had no chance to withstand Persia. But Daniel has another part of the vision. And in that part of the vision, there's a goat. And I like this because a goat is a great animal for strength and power and might. If you understand mascots much better than, you know, things like turtles and, you know, falcons and things like that. Goat. If you want to picture a mighty animal, you pick a goat. I'm just saying. So, it's biblical. That's all I'm saying. It's in the Bible. So, <laughs> so, um, and in verses 5 to 7, he has this vision of the goat. And notice this goat comes in, and it's different than the uh, ram. It's only got one horn, and it's even faster. As fast as the ram, it seemed to be. Notice we're told the goat comes from the west, and he comes across the whole earth, and he never even touches the ground. I mean, he is flying. If you remember in chapter 7, the Greek empire was represented by a leopard with four wings on its back, and it flew really fast. Same things going on here. It comes uh, raging in very quickly, and it shockingly knocks the ram down. The ram is powerless to stand against him, and he tramples all over the ram. Now, what all of this um, is representing is Alexander and the rise of the Greek Empire. Now, again, we know because in verse 21, we're told that the shaggy goat, is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king, Daniel. I mean, first king, uh, king 
This is in Daniel 8.21. And that is Alexander. Now notice, Alexander was actually born in 356, and he became king in 336. So he's only 20 years old when he becomes the king. And at that time, his father Philip had started asserting Macedon's power, Macedonia's power over the rest of the Greek city-states. But you would have not thought Alexander was going to do much of anything at that point. But he's only 20 years old, and it's in 336. Well, in 334, he invades Persia, which a lot of people think is foolhardy and crazy. He's facing a much larger army, but at Granicus in 334 BC, he actually gives a resounding defeat to the Persians because Alexander is conducting warfare in a new way, which when I was at the Naval Academy, we actually studied all three of the battles I'm going to mention because Alexander was bringing new strategy and tactics to warfare. So that's in 334. Well, at Issus in November 333, so only about you know, six months later, he wins again, and then he finally crushes them in October 331 and at Gagamela, and that means in less than three years, the entire Persian Empire, the largest empire the world had ever known, falls in three years. Now, now think about how swift that is. I mean, if you go back and look, the British Empire was at its height in the 17 and 1800s, but there's obviously been a decline in how much empire they have and their relative strength and power, but that decline's been going on for a couple hundred years. Rome starts its decline, and in one form or another, last another, from the time Rome itself is sacked, Constantinople continues for another thousand years. Persia goes into fight with Alexander, and three years later, it's over. Three years. There's never been anything like this, but notice that Daniel predicted all of this 200 years before it happened. And Daniel didn't know any Greeks. He certainly didn't know anything about Macedon. He certainly knew nothing about Philip or this young guy, Alexander the Great. But Notice here the next thing, which is as mighty as Alexander is, and everybody looked back, you have to understand, everybody wanted to go and visit Alexander's tomb. Alexander is called Alexander the Great for a reason. If you notice, that's not even a modern appellation. Plutarch way back referred to him as Alexander the Great because nobody had seen a man like this. But notice what happens to Alexander in verses 8 and 22. In verse 8 we read, the goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Alexander not only conquered Persia, he kept rolling. He rolled all the way to India until basically the only reason he stopped, nobody could stand before him, but eventually the army started saying, look, we're from Greece. You remember that place way back there? We've been wandering across the world. There's nothing over here we really want. We've conquered everything. We're tired of this. And so eventually, they decide that they want to return towards home, but they get back to Babylon, of all places. And in Babylon, Alexander falls sick. Historians aren't exactly sure. Some people rumored that he'd been poisoned. Some people think that he died of West Nile virus. Some think it was malaria. But on June the 13th of 323, so Alexander's not yet even 33 years old, Alexander the Great 
suddenly dies. But he not only dies, when he dies, he's being asked by his generals who's in charge, and he's whispering, and there was argument as to whether he whispered and uttered the name of one of his generals or whether he whispered a Greek word that means to the strongest. Y'all fight it out, which may seem to be the way Alexander might have actually done it. But nonetheless, what ends up happening is Alexander has a son who's about to be born, and he's got a half-brother, but eventually both of them are murdered, and the empire breaks down into a couple of decades of conflict, and does anybody want to guess how many kingdoms eventually arise out of the one kingdom? Four. Like there were four heads on the leopard, like there are four horns that pop out of the place of the one. And all of this works out. And again, Daniel declared all of this over 200 years before it happened. All of this is so accurate, including what we're going to be seeing about this other little horn in a moment. Liberal scholars want to say it could not have been written back when it says it was going to be written. Now, what's interesting is they want to say that it was actually written around 160 B.C., but I was just actually reading a, a book, that, writing that I'm going to mention in a moment, First Maccabees, which we know was written around that time, and guess who they quote as examples of standing under persecution? Three guys in a fire and a guy in a lion's den. So apparently they're quoting something they got wrote, wrote like last week, which makes no sense. It goes against all rationale and logic, but you only have two choices. Either somehow, as crazy as it sounds, it goes against all the evidence, but it must be written late, or we have to admit there is a God who can predict and control the future. That's the two choices you have. And the reality is, it's obvious that there is a God who can predict and control the future. So Daniel's predicted all of this. The rise of the Persians, the rise of the Greeks, their rise and swift fall for both of them. Nobody would have believed Persia could fall in three years. And nobody would have believed that at 32 years of age, Alexander would have conquered the world, had it all laying at his feet, and then suddenly died with no heir to the throne. But it's exactly what happened. But as if that's not enough, we learn more about the future that's going to go on. And this is really the biggest concern that Daniel has for the people of God in this uh, chapter. Because there's no question on the stage of world history, the Persian Empire and Alexander the Great are far more important than this other horn that's going to rise up. But to the people of God, the other horn was far more important. Whatever Alexander was doing off towards India had very little to do with God's people. But what this other little horn was going to do had everything to do with the survival of the faith. So notice in verses uh, 9 and 23, we read about another uh, little horn that grows up. It starts small and it grows great. And we're told that it, uh, it moves to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. And it refers to this little horn later on. It says that he's a stern-faced king and a master of intrigue. So he's going to be rising up out of one of the four kingdoms. He's going to be 
moving around and actually trying to conquer the other kingdoms, and he's going to have power and authority over Israel, and he's actually going to be a person who operates by intrigue, and he's going to be very stern. Now, who all this is referring to is a man that you may have never heard of. His name is Antiochus. He was actually the fourth, but he took the surname Epiphanes, which means basically, uh, I'm a revelation of God, is what his name means. I'm Antiochus Epiphanes, a revelation of God. And so he says, uh, this character rises up, and the reason that he's, we, he starts his intrigue is he's not even in the line of succession. They've already started to bump up against another empire named Rome, and he had to be taken. What they would do oftentimes back then is, I'll take your kid kind of as a hostage to keep us from doing anything to bother each other, and he was one of the hostages taken off. He's not in the line of succession, but eventually he gets through and through political manipulation, intrigue, and even murder. He ends up becoming the king around 175 BC, and he, there's four separate empires, I'm not going to go into all of them, but two of them that were important were the Ptolemaic, the Ptolemies were over Egypt, you may have heard of the most famous Ptolemy is Cleopatra, who's actually not Egyptian, she's Greek, uh, she's the most famous of the Ptolemies, Antiochus is from the Seleucid dynasty, but he rises up and he goes down and he conquers Egypt, and he's raging through, <clears throat> uh, actually, through uh, Israel at the time as well. And Daniel 10 and 11 go into a lot more detail on this. I'm not going to go into all the history and the battles because what's really important is what he did as the king. What did he do to the people of God? Well, we're told in verses 10 to 12 that uh, he grew in power. We're told he even reaches up to the host of heavens and he threw some of them down to the earth and trampled on them. And he sets himself up to be as great as the host. Now, the, the phrase here, and I'm going to talk about this more in after hours, it does not mean, number one, that he's literally fighting stars. Okay, that, this, is, this is apocalyptic literature. It also does not mean that he grabbed a bunch of angels and threw them down. It's actually referring to the people of God. And I'll come back and talk about that in a couple of minutes. But he's growing in his power. He's striking out at all of these things. And what he ends up doing is, as he comes into the promised land, where it says that, uh, notice, it says he sets himself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him. The price of his sanctuary was brought low. Uh, the daily sacrifice and the saints were given over to it. Now, what's going on here is Antiochus, when he comes into Israel, what he's aggressively trying to make everybody do is be Greek. Okay. And so he says, look, here's what you need to do. We're, we're going to set up gymnasiums. That, and the Greek word for you know, gymnasium means the place, it's a place of learning, but it's also a place where you came when all the men coming there are naked. Why is that going to be a problem for Jewish men? Besides modesty, why is it going to be a problem? Because they're circumcised. And he doesn't want circumcision. You need to stop doing that to your sons circumcision is gross. In fact, we know some Jewish men started trying, and, and don't look this up, I, I got curious because reading in Maccabees, they started trying to uncircumcise themselves, you don't want to know. But they're trying to undo this problem that they have. But he not only sets up gymnasiums, he starts saying, look, 
you need to worship the Greek gods. And I don't want you studying that Torah. You need to study our writings. You need to adopt our way of living. Um, so he even eventually starts destroying copies of Torah, and he starts putting you to death if you're caught with copies of Torah. And he eventually even forces them to stop offering daily sacrifices in the temple. And then, uh, during all of this, and the book that I referenced earlier, there's two uh, ancient uh, Jewish historical accounts. They're not scriptural, but First and Second Maccabees. I read First Maccabees the other day, uh, just kind of reading and getting prepared for this. In Second Maccabees, it tells us that he slaughtered a total of 80,000 men, women, and children. And in 167 BC, he built an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on it. Now, why did he do that? Because he's desecrating the temple. He's doing an abomination to desecrate the temple. That's everything that Antiochus is after. And there is a huge persecution that's going on here. And the persecution actually lasted from in 170, he had the high priest put to death, and it lasts all the way to 163 which is about seven years, just under seven years the persecution lasted. The desecration of the temple from 167 until the date when it was rededicated was about three and a half years. Now I bring these up because notice that what we're told uh, in verses 13 and 14 is uh, the angel saying, how long is this going to last? And the answer is it's going to last 2300 mornings and evenings or evenings and mornings is that's going to last and this can mean one of two things and scholars are evenly divided on this you can see good people on both sides uh, some say it's 1150 days of morning and evening sacrifices notice they say 2300 days of evenings and mornings uh, and so that it is the sacrifices which would be about three years and two months because that would be 1150 days it'd be about three years and two months which is just over the amount of time from the time he sacrificed the pig until the temple was reconsecrated, which is what's celebrated in Hanukkah every year now. If you have Jewish friends and they celebrate Hanukkah, they're actually celebrating the end of all of this time when there was a rededication of the temple. And so probably from the time that he stopped the daily sacrifice until the daily sacrifice could start again was about 1,150 days. And so some scholars say that's what he's talking about. Others say, no, it's 2,300 days of persecution and desecration because the amount of time from the time that he killed the high priest until the armies of Antiochus are defeated, the temple is reconsecrated and sacrifices start again is a bit over six years or 2,300 days. Both of them are actually true. Either one of them could be true. But here's the central fact. The central idea is Antiochus is trying to crush the faith. He's not just trying to alter a little bit here or there. He's saying you must stop worshiping the way you worship. I don't want you reading Torah. I don't want you owning a copy of Torah. Stop circumcising your son. Some of them start trying to undo what's already been done in the past. 
I want you to come down to the gymnasium. I want you to adopt Greek culture, Greek customs, Greek language and way of doing things, and I want you to worship our God. So I'm going to build an altar to Zeus here in your temple. We're going to sacrifice a pig to it because you need to get over all this stuff about your kosher food laws. You need to get with the program. Now, if you're Daniel and you're getting any inkling of this, this has got to carry him back to when he was taken into exile. And everything was crushed. And everything was lost. And it is a brutally difficult time. And let me just say, if you're Daniel, one of the questions that may not have occurred to you yet is, Daniel's getting this vision, there is no temple. The temple's been destroyed. So this, in one moment, gives him the hope that the temple's going to be restored, and then he's going to find out, in the same breath, it's going to get desecrated again. And then he's going to find out in chapter 9, it's going to happen again. Um, so, but... At this point, I want us to take a step back for a second and look at the spiritual nature of Antiochus's actions. Because some people would say, well, Antiochus was just saying, I'm Greek, we've conquered this area, it's now part of the Greek empire, we're just trying to make people Greek, we're trying to unify people. This is a political, not a spiritual thing. But it clearly is spiritual. First, notice how we're told in verses 10 and 11 again that his power grows until he reaches up to the, the host of the heavens and he threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth. In verse 24, it's parallel because this is where it's being described what all these things mean, who the kings are and what they're doing. It says he will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. So there's a parallelism. These stars are actually not physical stars, nor are they angels. It's a way of referring to God's people, the saints. Now, that may sound strange to you, but actually Daniel's going to come back and use the same language in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. In Daniel 12, 3, we're going to read, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you've read your New Testament a lot, that verse may sound a little bit familiar, and that's because Paul basically quotes it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. It says, you know, among whom you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And so here Daniel says, look, the people of God, those who are wise, those who walk faithfully are like the stars of the heavens. Can you think of any other time that God spoke and said, my people will be like the stars of heaven? Does that bring back anything to mind? Like Abraham? Step outside, if you, if you can count the stars. Abraham is the dust of the seashore, the stars in the heavens, so you will be. Now you need to remember, this is a thing about Israel, whether they're going to survive as a people. And so it appears that the promise God had given to Abraham is about to be crushed by Antiochus Epiphanes. It appears that no one can stand against him. And I, again... I'm going to go into a little bit more. If you watch After Hours, that will drop on Tuesday. I'm going to talk a little bit more about why you cannot read things like the stars of the heavens in apocalyptic literature as literally meaning the stars of the heavens. You can't do it here. You cannot do it in Matthew chapter 24, which is referencing back to here. You should not do it in the book of Revelation. Okay? When it says a star falls to earth, 
Somebody work with me here. If the smallest star in the entire universe even came into our solar system, what would happen? Right. Could it possibly fall into the Earth? No. They are far larger. Our sun's only a medium-sized star, okay? This is apocalyptic language. So, so learn as we're reading along here. Throwing down the stars means I'm trampling the people of God underfoot. Just like a goat is Greece, a horn is Alexander. He's not literally a goat or a horn, and the people of God are not literally stars, but they work that way symbolically. Now, notice it's not only here, so he's using this, and why he's using it is because they're wanting us to know the cosmic nature of what's going on here. Make no mistake, he doesn't want to just say he's fighting against the people of God. He's wanting to say, look, he's rising up to heaven. This is a battle, a guy arrayed against heaven. He's actually against the prince of heaven, which is God himself. So notice in verse 11, we're told, he sets himself up to be as great as the prince of the host. This is the Lord of hosts. You can look back in Joshua to see this. This is God himself that it is speaking about here. And in verse 25, we're told again, because there's a parallelism where it's explaining the vision. In verse 25, he's going to take his stand against the prince of princes. Antiochus, make no mistake, this isn't just political. He wants everybody to worship the Greek gods. He's even taken the surname that I'm Epiphanes. If you, you know, we... In, in the, the church in January, we have a holiday called Epiphany. It's the revelation. It's God being revealed to us in Jesus. Except for Antiochus is saying, I'm kind of the revelation of God. He's setting himself up against God. His fight, make no mistake, is not just against the people of God. It's against God himself. You remember when Saul of Tarsus is breathing out murder against the church, who does Jesus say he's persecuting? You're persecuting me. If you're fighting my people, you are fighting me. Thirdly, notice there's this phrase in verse 24. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. Now, maybe that could mean that some other political alliances, but given the spiritual nature of what's going on here, I think we're being told he's basically being empowered by Satan. It's because the whole context here is spiritual. He's not just fighting against human beings. These are the stars of heaven. These are the people of God. He's not just setting himself up to be an important ruler. He's actually setting himself up against Yahweh. And he's being empowered here, not by his own power, but rather by Satan. And we're going to look a little bit more at the supernatural nature of some of these things in the coming weeks. So all of this is going on, but here's the amazing thing. Just like we saw Persia rose up, it seemed like none could deliver from their power, and in three years it's over. Alexander rises up. It seems like none can deliver from his power, and at 32 years of age, he suddenly dies. Well, Antiochus is the same way. He's got all of his power. He's winning a bunch of battles. But notice in Daniel 8, 25, we're told, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Persia was destroyed by Alexander. Alexander was killed either by poison or by a disease. 
Antiochus here, we're told, is going to be destroyed, but it's not going to be by human power. And what we know from historically is he had left Israel. He was in another area. He laid siege to a city, but he lost. And then right after that, he heard that a Jewish army under Judas Maccabeus, which is why the name of the Maccabees, had crushed his army in Palestine, and he basically went into a deep depression. And in 163 BC, apparently died of grief and sickness rather than in battle. He wasn't killed. He didn't die out on the battlefield. It wasn't glorious. He just started hearing a bunch of bad news and went into a downward spiral and never recovered. So the little horn is judged for his wicked actions against God and his people exactly as had been prophesied 400 years prior. 400 years prior to the time God has done this. Now, what does this mean to us? Because I don't want, one of the things I'm wrestling here in these later chapters of Daniel is to not turn this into a history lesson, okay? God wants to speak to us. This was important to them. Believe you me, if you lived around 167 in Israel, you're reading Daniel. You're paying attention. And we know they were because we know the Maccabees are saying, look, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just like Daniel, we need to stand against this. This is just like what we were told before. You would need to understand this. But for us, we're looking back at history. What does this speak to us? Two things, and one I'm going to do very briefly because we've been hitting these a lot. And that is it's reiterating the ideas of persecution and God's sovereignty. This is, I know this is not cheery, and we don't all love hearing this, but the American church has bought into this theology that if, you know, just come to Jesus and every day will be better than it was the day before. Tell that to Daniel. Tell that to the people who lived under the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Tell that to Christians today in places like China. That is simply not the case. The book of Daniel reiterates to us over and over and over again. The Son of Man has come. He has established the kingdom. The kingdom is growing. It is growing like a mountain throughout the earth. It is like the mustard seed growing into the great tree. It is like the yeast working through the dough. But make no mistake, as it progresses, the people of God will be persecuted. It has always been so. I, I wish I didn't know this quote, but as the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the saints, blood of the martyrs, is seed for the church. And so it has been, friends. And the church is growing the fastest today, as it has through most of history, in the places where persecution is the hottest. And so we see that, but we also see God's sovereignty. Because once again, God, however you take the 2,300 days, here's the most important things. He's going to persecute, he's going to rage, but his time is limited. Amen. Just like the horn on the goat, just like the ram, the time is limited, and it's not set by their determination, it's set by the sovereignty of God. God determines what will happen, when it will happen, how long it will happen. So we need to remember that. They are essential for us to understand in the days of our exile. 
I do not know what the future is going to hold for us, but I do know this. I know God is sovereign. I know he will watch over us and better to suffer persecution for being faithful to God than to fail to turn away. Those who gave in to Antiochus for a six-year and a couple-of-month time of persecution to give in for eternity. It's a foolish choice. But that leads to the second point that I really want to focus on and I want us to get today. Do we see the accuracy and the authority of God's word? Friends, this chapter is full of proof of the truth of the word of God and the power of the word of God. Daniel prophesied these things hundreds of years in advance and they all came true. Just like all the other prophetic writings in the Old Testament, they are fulfilled because God's word is true. And I remind you, it's so accurate that unbelieving scholars say they have to be written after the events, but it's completely circular logic. How do you know it was written after the events? Well, it had to be written after the events. But what about all this evidence that says it was written before, but that couldn't have happened? How do you know it couldn't have happened? Because things like that don't happen. Uh, circular logic, much? But that's exactly what they've got. And it's because God's word declared it clearly and truly. The same thing with Jesus and his coming. It is all fulfilled. And we're going to see Daniel 9 is going to predict even when Christ is going to come. That he's, and we've already seen it in chapter 2 and chapter 7. He's going to come in the time of the fourth beast. All of this is laid out by Daniel. And this is a reminder to you and I. Whatever the world says, whatever is going on out there, what God says is true. And it's not true. You know, there's even a saying out there, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No. God said it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. Okay? God is not asking your opinion, nor is he asking mine, of how to rule the universe. He did not run the scripture by me as an editor. He didn't ask my opinion, believe it or not, nor anyone else's. He is the sovereign God, and his word is true. You remember Jesus, when he's actually talking about all of this, and he's using so many allusions in Matthew 24, going back to the book of Daniel, and Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. It would be easier for the entire cosmos to simply cease to exist than it would be for a jot or a tittle, the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T to come undone and to not be true. And God's word is not only true, God's word is powerful. Alexander rises up. He rules world. He weeps because he thinks, I need to get out there in space and conquer the other worlds. I am Lord of all. And when God utters a word, he's done. When God decides Babylon's time is up, Babylon's time is up. When he decides Persia's time on the stage is done, Persia's time on the stage is done. The same with Alexander. The same with Antiochus. It does not matter who you are. God is sovereign. And his word is 
powerful. When we come to the Lord's table, some of the prayers are me just weaving together some things out of Scripture. Do you understand? God spoke. There was nothing, nothing. And God speaks and everything. And the scripture tells us he not only spoke and created it, it's being sustained this very moment by the word of God. You can study all the science, you can look at all that, all that stuff's wonderful. All you're doing is describing how the word of God works to uphold and sustain it moment by moment. Not just you and me, the entire cosmos exists at his pleasure and is upheld by the word of his power. Now, this is so important for us because everything today, you know, again, I remind you, we are told constantly, you got to get on the right side of history. The word of God is the right side of history because you needed to get on the right side of history when it was Antiochus Epiphanes. There was no deliverance from this guy. He had already gone down and conquered Egypt. He had already taken over all the stuff. There was no way you were going to survive. You needed to get with the program. Don't you see the Greeks run everything? And then after that, it was the Romans run everything. But oddly enough, they're all just ruins today. But the word of God is still true. It is still powerful. Empires rise, empires fall, the word of God endures forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, his word will never pass away. And this is important for you and I too. Whatever things are not yet fulfilled in the word of God, we have this. Peter tells us we got the word of the prophets made more certain because everything they prophesied about Christ came true. Every bit of it was fulfilled. Messiah came, Messiah was rejected, Messiah was crucified, Messiah was dead, buried, and raised. Every bit of it done to prove the truth and the accuracy of the word of God. So friends, stand firm through all trials. God's word will never fail. You will never be ashamed for having stood firm for the word of God. He is faithful. He will do what he has promised. Amen? Amen. What we're going to do is we are going to come down to the table. And, um, and this is important for us because I want to remind us as well one of the temptations for the church today, if I can for a moment, I'm going to meddle and I'm going to critique the church. The American church trusts in anything and everything. We are about hype. We are about the latest marketing tool. We are about whatever glitz and glamour we can do. What can, what can I do up here to do? You know how the church grows? The church grows by word and sacrament. That's how the church grows. It is the power of God. Let me put it the way our world looks at it. The church grows by reading stuff that was written 2,700 or 2,500 years ago like I just did and then taking a little bread and juice. Amen. Because you know what? If God doesn't show up, there's nothing there. Amen. If your trust can be in anything else, it's not the way God works. 
but our God is faithful. The Word of God is not pages in a moldy book. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It rules and reigns over all creation. And this is not just coming for bread and juice. By the Spirit of God, we are enabled to feast upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, receiving all the benefits that He has given to us. Brothers and sisters, we live by word and sacrament. And the table here is going to remind us God's been faithful in the past. He promised and Jesus fulfilled. The table here points us to our future inheritance. You have an inheritance that will never spoil, that will never fade. Roth and musk uh, and uh, Roth and moths and rust, I'm having a hard time getting that out. Moths and rust decay and wipe things out. Even, I was reading in James yesterday, even gold and stuff, James, the, the rust is going to eat it all away. But not what you and I have. It is reserved for us. It will, it will only grow greater with time. And we're reminded of that at this table. Now I do, as we're getting ready to come to the table, I do want to say, if you are here and you're not a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, I, I want the most important thing is your relationship with him. Cyrus will stand before Jesus Christ. Alexander will stand before Jesus Christ. And he will not be Alexander the Great. He will be Alexander, accountable to the living God. Antiochus, Epiphanes, is going to stand before the true revelation of God. And you and I are going to stand before our God. And I want to urge you, do not stand there clothed in your own unrighteousness. Did you hear what Greg read earlier today? It's our only hope. If God were to count our sins, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are to be feared. And I, my soul hopes in the Lord in his word I put my Brothers and sisters, I urge you, if you have never, if you are here and you're not a brother or sister, I urge you with everything in me, look to Jesus Christ for salvation. Your only hope is his broken body, his shed blood, his resurrection. That is our hope. If you are a believer, I invite you to the table. And I'm going to give you words out of Isaiah 55, which God spoke to his exiled people. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me. Come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. If you are trusting in the one that God promised to David, our Lord Jesus, to forgive you, I invite you to the table. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night of his betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and take the packet and peel back the first part for the bread. Oh, Father, you are the faithful, sovereign God, and your word is true. By your word, creation leapt into existence, and it is sustained by your word each moment. In the wilderness, you fed your people with manna, teaching them that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a first fruit of all you created. So as your people, we receive this bread in faith, humbly acknowledging our need for your word to reveal the truth and to feed and sustain us today. Take and eat. O Lord Jesus, you are the eternal word, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. By you, everything was created, and by you, we have been redeemed. After purifying us by your blood, you sat down at the right hand of the Father, and you reigned from there until you put everything under your feet. We take this cup in faith, giving thanks for your blood by which we have been bought, purified, and saved. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together, and we will cry out to the Holy Spirit. 
and then go forth under the blessing of God. Holy Spirit, you spoke through the prophets of old, carrying them along so that they spoke and wrote the very word of God. As the people of God, we receive the scripture as your inspired word, perfect in every way for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Spirit of God, fill us now that we might live this week under your influence. Spirit of God, fill us now that we might speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, stirring up gratitude in our hearts to God the Father and doing everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And God's people say, Amen. Brothers and sisters, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Go forth blessed and filled with his word and be a blessing to others. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.